Good morning, Faith Bible. This is your cue to get everybody in the living room or the den or the study. Uh, get your coffee, get your Bible, uh, get everybody gathered together. Good morning to all of you watching this live stream, whether you're in Edmond or on the other side of the country or in another country. Uh, we're very glad that you are joining us for this, our Sunday morning time of worship. You probably know that Faith Bible clings to four core values four core values. The first is believe the gospel. Uh, we want to see people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. The Christian life is both starts and ends with believing the gospel. Second, we want to see people grow in Christ. We want to see them grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and in his grace as well. And, and that involves a, a, a consistent prayer life, a consistent time in God's word, a consistent uh, connection to uh, God's people, which is our third core value. We want to see people connect with one another uh, in meaningful relationships. These relationships are those that we, we see people praying for one another, serving one another, honoring one another, just loving one another in tangible ways. That's our third core value. Fourth, we want to see people serve the church and the world. We believe that God has gifted every believer uh, to build up the body of Christ. And we also believe that God has burdened every believer to see the gospel go forth and make disciples of all nations. And the great thing about those four core values is that we do not have to be in our building to flesh those things out. Uh, you can believe the gospel uh, as you watch this broadcast at home. Maybe today, for the first time, you will have put your trust in Jesus Christ. But if, if maybe you've known Christ for a long time, hopefully this will deepen your understanding uh, of Jesus and what he's done for you. You can continue to grow in Christ as God has maybe given you extra margin as you spend time at home and, and spend more time in prayer and in his word. Now, meaningfully connecting with one another, maybe that's gotten more difficult when we don't have the FaceTime, uh, but we have a different kind of FaceTime. We have Zoom calls. We have all these other things that we're doing, and I think our intentionality in terms of connecting uh, with one another uh, has gone up uh, dramatically, and it's also given us a hunger uh, for one another when we eventually are able uh, to get back uh, together and, and regather uh, sometime uh, in, these, in these later weeks. And then serving the church in the world. Uh, I don't know of a more opportune time that God has given us to look around at our neighbors and those that uh, are in our sphere and, and given us ways to maybe tangibly meet uh, their needs or emotionally meet their needs or just simply uh, spend time in, in prayer and encouragement uh, with those people that, that, that God has put around us. So we do not have to be in our building uh, to flesh these core, core values out. We believe the gospel and we grow in Christ and we connect with one another and we serve the church and the world wherever God has us today. And as you worship at home today, we'd love for you to use the hashtag Faith Bible at home. If you take a picture or a video and post that uh, on social media, that would give us an opportunity to, to see you. Uh, and seeing you is a really tremendous blessing right now. Uh, in fact, we have a scripture reading that's going to take place later on in our service where you're going to be able to see one another a little bit, and I think you'll be greatly encouraged by it. Bow your heads with me. Uh, I'm going to give us a call to worship, and I'm going to do that uh, from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm of David. It's a psalm of repentance. Listen to these words. David's, David writes, My tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth 
may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Father, we come to you today. Our desire is to joyfully sing of your righteousness. And we do this broken over our own sin. With contrite hearts, in humility, we come to you knowing that you will not despise us. God, we're going to sing a line in this next song that says, Death to death is life for me. And we cling to that deep truth. We know that Christ has gone to the grave for us and that we will live forever when we're united to him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Say
let's be encouraged by the reading of scripture together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised from the dead, who sits at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Trust the
changing grace in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand
consuming fire, a burning holy flame with glory and freedom. Amen. Amen. I want to thank our uh our worship leaders for leading us this morning here in uh, the worship of our great God. We want to thank you for joining us here this morning. Uh, we appreciate you worshiping with us. We really do. Um, it means a great deal to us that you would uh, spend this Lord's Day this morning with us. Um, I pray that our time this morning encourages and equips and empowers all of us in our uh, walk with Jesus Christ. We're getting uh, close, hopefully, to getting back together on Sundays, at least in, in some uh, limited form, and uh, we'll keep you updated in the days ahead uh, about that. Before we open God's Word this morning, though, let's, uh, let's pray together. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Last night I was uh, reading in the Psalms, and I read Psalm 36, uh, these beautiful words. How precious is your loving kindness, O God! The children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. Father, we come before you today, and we thank you for your precious loving kindness. We thank you that we can take refuge in the shadow of your wings. We thank you that you give us to drink of the river of your delights, and in your light we see light. Father, we'd ask this morning that as we open your word together, that we would see light from on high, or that your light would come into our lives in the areas of darkness that uh, need to be made transparent. Father, we exist for your glory. We pray that you'll be glorified in what we do here this morning. You'll be glorified in this church. You'll be glorified in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, our homes. Father, we'll put you on display and make you known. Father, with what's going on in our world and our country today and our state, we pray that uh, politics won't get in the way of what's best for our nation. We pray that you'll give our leaders wisdom to know what to do. And uh, Lord, we commit them to you and to your grace and pray that you'll help them to be able to help us. Father, we pray for a quick rebound for our economy, but we pray that in the meantime that you'll remind us often that our true wealth is found in you. Father, help each one of us to keep in step with the Spirit in our daily lives, following your pattern and your plan for our lives. And we come now to commit ourselves and our time in, in the Word to you. We pray that you'll teach us by your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to return to our study of the book of 2 Peter after a several-week hiatus due to the coronavirus outbreak. I've given just kind of several one-time messages over the last several weeks, and I've enjoyed that a lot, and I pray that those messages have comforted and encouraged you. But it's good to get back to 2 Peter, back to the study that we broke away from several weeks ago. Now, I know it's been a while since we've been in 2 Peter, so I want to kind of get our bearings in this book again. Again, because I know it's been a while since we've been there, but you'll remember in 2 Peter, and if you'll go ahead and, and uh, take your Bible and you can go ahead and, and turn there with me, but uh, in 2 Peter, remember the Apostle Peter's in prison. Um, this is uh, kind of his last will and testament. It's his swan song. Uh, Peter's on death row, if you will. He, he's awaiting execution. And really the the main focus of this book is on these false teachers who have infiltrated and infected the churches uh, that Peter is writing to. 
And so the key word in 2 Peter is the word know. Fourteen times in this book, in different forms of the Greek word, we find the word know. And so we, we've said, we, we, we've titled this series, Know and Grow. We've said that's really the key to this book, is know and grow. In fact, at the very beginning of the book, in, in chapter 1 and verse 2, he talks about knowledge of the Lord, and then he goes on to talk about us growing spiritually. And then the very last verse of the book says that we're to be growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the idea of knowing and growing kind of bracket this book. And we've said that, that really the theme of Second Peter is that growing Christians are knowing Christians, that you have to know in order to grow. You and I grow in proportion to what we know. And again, it's not just head knowledge, but it's a true knowledge of God, a, a heart knowledge of who He is and what He wants us to do. Now, there's three main sections in 2 Peter, and they kind of break up nicely into three main chapters. There's three things we need to know. In chapter 1, we need to know our spiritual growth, and we need to know how we can grow in grace. Chapter 2 that we're going to pick up in here this morning is we need to know the seducers, false teachers. What should we expect from false teachers? In chapter 3, we need to know the second coming. How's it all going to end? So chapter 1 is be growing, chapter 2 is beware, and chapter 3 is be ready. Now we left off last time uh, with Jay uh, brought a message on chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And it's a summary of these false teachers that were infiltrating the churches that Peter is writing to. And he left off, you'll remember, at the end in chapter 2, verse 3, Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So he breaks off there saying, look, God is going to judge these false teachers. Even though he doesn't look like he's doing anything now, judgment delayed is not judgment denied. God ultimately will judge uh, these false teachers. And by the way, we're going to see in chapter 3, these false teachers denied the second coming of Jesus. And they denied the idea of a final judgment. By the fact that they deny it, they can't deny it away. It's going to happen regardless of what they say. Now, I'm going to read our passage for us here in just a moment, but I want you to just notice something about the structure of it before I read it. Notice it starts out in verse 4, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, down in verse 5, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7, and if he rescued righteous Lot, then notice down in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the righteous, uh, how to rescue the, the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment. This section is a long, a long one sentence, and it's a conditional sentence. It's a long if-then clause. If God does this, and if God does this, and if God does this, then God does this. In other words, this statement or this passage we're looking at is evidence that God is going to judge these false teachers. In other words, God has established a precedent of how He works in both wrath and rescue. And so he's going to give three classic examples of God's past judgment of the ungodly. And based on that, he's going to do the same thing that he's done in the past and the future when he judges all the ungodly. So judgment is looming for these false teachers, but it's also going to be broadened out to include all the ungodly. It's not just these false teachers, but it's all those who reject God and His Son, Jesus Christ. So let me read these verses for us. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Well, so reads uh, God's inspired word. The focus of our passage here this morning is everybody's favorite topic, divine judgment. It's a topic everybody loves. Everybody likes to talk about and think about uh, the judgment and the wrath of God. Well, J.I. Packer in his famous book, Knowing God, says this, Do you believe in divine judgment? By which I mean, do you believe in a God who acts as our judge? Many, it seems, do not. Speak to them of God as a father, a friend, a helper, one who loves us despite our weaknesses and folly and sin, and their faces light up, and you're on their wavelength at once. But speak to them of God as judge, and they frown and they shake their heads. Their minds recoil from such an idea. They find it repellent and unworthy. But there are few things stressed more strongly in the Bible than the reality of God's work as judge. J.I. Packer's right in saying that from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation. We see God is a God of grace and mercy and love, but God is also a God who judges. And I think Packer's diagnosis here is pretty accurate about how people feel about the judgment of God. And I think today in our culture, many people feel like they're too enlightened to believe in divine judgment. They're kind of too refined or too cultured. Uh, People today, I think, in our culture sometimes have this idea that we've kind of outgrown the idea of God's judgment. We've moved beyond it. Uh, God's judgment is outdated. It's kind of medieval and and, and primitive. Um, People have just written it off. But as much as people like to avoid thinking about God's judgment, it seems to me like a lot more people are thinking about it nowadays than maybe were a few months ago in light of this uh, pandemic that's spreading the globe. The notion of divine judgment doesn't seem so outdated anymore. You know, one recent poll reports, this is is surprising to me, 44% of Americans say that this pandemic is a wake-up call from God and a sign of coming judgment. About half the people in America believe this is a wake-up call from God and it's a sign of coming judgment. Look, we could talk a lot about what the coronavirus is and what it's not, but whatever else it is, it certainly is a merciful wake-up call from God for people to repent. It's God's megaphone, if you will, to get our attention. It's a preview or a heads-up. It's a warning to us that greater judgment is coming. So I believe it's more important now than ever before to understand the nature and the character of God's judgment because judgment, I think, more than maybe any time in recent history is on people's minds. More people are thinking about it. 
And so in our text this morning, what I want to do is look at three key points about the judgment of God. And again, if you have the outline before, you can see these three points. Judgment is inevitable. It's inevitable. But judgment is not immediate, and judgment is not inescapable. So judgment's inevitable, but it's not immediate, and it's not inescapable. So let's start with that first point. Judgment is inevitable. The judgment of these false teachers and their followers and all the other ungodly is certain and assured. Look back in uh, verse 1. The Bible says in in, in chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Peter, right at the end of the verse, they're going to bring swift destruction upon themselves. Uh, Down in verse 3, their destruction is not asleep. Uh, Down in verse 9, the Lord knows how to keep their unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And down in uh, verse 12, he says at the end, they will will, uh, in the destruction of these creatures also be destroyed. So at least four times in this passage, God highlights the destruction of these false teachers and their followers and really of all the ungodly. God will punish the wicked. Because God's character demands it. Now, the main point in verses 4 through 10 is to warn us that since God has punished the unrighteous in the past, God is going to punish the unrighteous in the future. In other words, God has set a precedent or a paradigm, a pattern. There's a track record here. And let me just say this this morning. We can't avoid teaching on God's judgment if we're faithful to the Bible. I know there are a lot of of people who avoid... uh, preaching on judgment, they avoid it like the plague, pun intended. But we can't avoid it if we're going to be faithful to the Bible. Again, it's from Genesis to Revelation. God's judgment is unavoidable. In fact, we could even say this, God himself is unavoidable. You and I have to deal with God. We have to ultimately face him and who he is. And Peter here illustrates the inevitability of God's judgment with three examples from the past. And they're all from the book of Genesis. I think that's interesting. He's saying, look, from the very beginning, God has judged uh, the wicked. And they're in chronological order as they appear in the book of Genesis. The first is God judged sinning angels. Then God judged the, the people in Noah's day in the flood. And then God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And you see in these three judgments a reduction in scale, kind of a narrowing of the scope. With God's judgment of the angels, it's kind of a cosmic judgment. With His judgment of the people in Noah's day, it's a global judgment. And then the the judgment at Sodom and Gomorrah is a local judgment. So He goes from the cosmic to the global down to the local level. So let's look briefly at each of these examples. And again, we're not going to be able to go into them as much detail as I'd like to. But the lead-off example here in verse 4 are sinning angels. Notice, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So Peter goes back and gives an illustration from the dawn of human history, kind of a a mysterious moment as God judges these sinning angels. Now, this is Peter's third reference to angels in his letters. He mentions angels twice in, uh, in uh, 1 Peter, and then here in 2 Peter, this is his um, uh, first mention of them here in this book, and only one. 
Now, who are these angels who sin that God commits to, to, to pits of darkness? There's two main views on who these angels are. A lot of commentators will say that these are the angels, the fallen angels, who defected with Satan in his original rebellion against God. Remember Satan, who was a created being, an angel? Um, he defected and led a, a, a rebellion against God in heaven. And Revelation 12, 4 tells us that the dragon's tail swept a third of the stars of heaven. So a third of the angelic host defected with, with Satan and became what we know today as demonic spirits. Now, the problem with that view is it says here that these angels who sinned, God cast them into hell. And we know today that Satan and fallen angels are not in hell, but they're free to roam about the earth. We, they're known as demonic spirits. Like Satan himself is like a roaring lion seeking, uh, roaming about seeking whom he may uh, devour. But these fallen angels here, whoever they are, they're bound. So I think the best view is that these are angels who fell with Satan in his original rebellion, so they're fallen angels, but then they later committed another especially heinous sin that necessitated a more severe judgment than what had already befallen them. And so I think this is a reference back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Now, again, we could talk about that passage for a long period of time. It's a, one of the most enigmatic passages in the Bible, but I think it's a reference back to them. One of the reasons I would say that is if you cross-reference here in 2 Peter chapter 2 with the book of Jude, which 2 Peter 2 and Jude are very parallel to one another. They both deal with false teachers or apostates. And if you go to Jude chapter uh, uh, Jude verse 6, uh, Jude uh, writes this, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he's kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then he goes on next and mentions the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. So notice these are angels that didn't keep their own domain, but abandoned uh, their, their, uh, their, their proper uh, role or function. So what he's saying here, I think about these angels, is these are angels back in Genesis 6 fallen angels, demons, who took on some form, some human form, and cohabited or intermarried with women in that day. Now, this, it's a bizarre passage, but it says that the sons of God came into the daughters of men and cohabited with them. And they have offspring, and I think a lot of this really is the, the basis or the foundation of a lot of the mythology uh, that came about later on, of the gods coming down and cohabiting with women and, and having offspring. But the point here is in Jude, he says, they went after strange flesh. That is, they departed from the established order, and they went after something that was not natural. Uh, one writer I read put it like this, they crossed species lines. And the reason they did that is they were trying to destroy God's redemptive purpose. Because you remember after the fall, God said, there's going to come one from the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so Satan, in a great conspiracy, I believe, that's hatched, has these angelic beings, these fallen angels, cohabit with women to produce a race of people who are not fully human. And in doing that, if he corrupts enough of the human race, there can't come a redeemer from the seed of the woman who can crush the head of the serpent. So it's a grand scheme to destroy the redemptive purposes of God. 
By the way, I think that's why God sent something as severe as the global flood to wipe all of that out. But I think his point here in 2 Peter is, look, these false teachers are doing the same thing. They're trying to destroy God's redemptive purposes as well, and they're going to be destroyed. But look, whatever view you take of these fallen angels and what they did, Peter leaves no doubt about what happened to them. Notice here in uh, verse 4, he says he cast them into hell. Literally, the word there is the word Tartarus, the lowest part of the underworld in that day. And it's a verb form, so literally you could translate this, God Tartarized them. He sent them down to the lowest parts of hell, or the hell hole of hell, if you will. Reserve, and they're being reserved for judgment there. So, look, the, these false teachers are trying to destroy God's redemptive purposes, just like these fallen angels had done. And he's saying, look, God's judgment's not idle. It's not falling asleep. God is going to judge these false teachers and all the ungodly someday in the future. And by the way, this tells us that, that even evil is under God's control. God controls it all. And that's a comfort for us, I think, in these times in which we live. Again, a lot more we could say about that, but that'll suffice here, I think, for, the, for this morning. Now, notice the next illustration is the flood. And if God didn't spare the ancient world, verse 5, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, three times in his two epistles, Peter refers to the flood. He refers to it back in chapter 3, uh, verses 18 to 21. He refers to it here, and he's going to refer to it in chapter 3 again, and we'll talk about it there in more detail. I was uh, doing some reading this week. I ran across an article that says, All I need to know I learned from Noah's Ark. Here's a few points someone had. Don't miss the boat. Remember, we're all in the same boat. Plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. I like this one. Stay fit. When you're 600 years old, someone may ask you to do something really big. Uh, Build your future on high ground. For safety's sake, travel in pairs. Uh, Speed isn't everything. The snails were on board with the cheetahs. Remember the ark was built by amateurs, the Titanic by professionals. No matter the storm, when you're with God, there's always a rainbow waiting. Well, look, there's a lot of lessons you can get from Noah and the ark and the flood, but the main lesson is God's judgment on the ungodly. That's the main lesson. I think that with the flood, we often get hung up on the geologic issues or question how Noah could get all the animals on the ark or where the dinosaurs fit into all of this. And we miss the main point, namely that there was a horrific judgment on the entire earth. Everyone and everything not on the ark perished. And the Bible uses the flood as a warning to everyone since that time that a far worse future judgment is coming when all the ungodly who are not on board the ark of Jesus Christ will perish eternally. That's the focus here in this passage of the flood. And these ungodly false teachers that are infiltrating the churches Peter's writing to and all the ungodly will ultimately be judged. That's his point. Now, verse 6, we move from Noah to Sodom and Gomorrah. We move from water as a means of judgment now to fire as a means of judgment. Notice uh, in verse uh, 6, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes. Now, we won't go back there, but this story is found in Genesis uh, 18 through 20, 18 and 19. 
And remember in that day, there were, there were actually five cities of the plain. It was the, the Pentapolis or the five cities. And four of those cities were destroyed by God. One of them was spared, and that's the one that Lot fled to with his two daughters. But the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are the two that God focuses upon. And you go back and read the passage. It's a, it's a horrific scene of judgment. Back in Genesis 19, it says, The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord uh, out of heaven. It mentions burning sulfur and dense smoke, and it was burning like smoke from a furnace. God turned those cities into an ash pile. God torched those cities and turned them into an ash pile and sentenced them to never, ever be rebuilt again. And from that time on, Sodom and Gomorrah become kind of a paradigm or a prototype of God's judgment on the ungodly. In fact, um, Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned 18 times in the Old Testament, nine times in the New Testament. You know, many of you know uh, a couple months ago here we got back from our trip to Israel. And when you go to Israel, you see a lot of sites there. It's a, a wonderful time, and you go see a lot of great biblical sites. But one site you'll never visit when you go uh, to the land of Israel. They'll never take you to the site of Sodom and Gomorrah because they don't know where it is. It's literally been wiped off the face of the earth. It's nowhere to be found. And, of course, Jesus mentioned uh, Sodom and Gomorrah uh, himself and the judgment uh, that was to come upon uh, those cities. What did Jesus say in chapter 17 of of Luke's gospel uh, down in uh, verse 28? And it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, drinking. They were were buying, they were selling, planning, they were building. But on that day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day uh, that the Son of Man is revealed. Now, in our passage here, it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, and it mentions here that their behavior was sensual. Says here uh, down in verse seven, their sensual behavior, and that's a word that often designates sexual sin. Uh, back in, in Ezekiel chapter sixteen, we know that that homosexuality was not the only uh, sin in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. It tells us they were prideful and greedy; they were selfish; they lived lives of careless ease; they oppressed the poor; they were immoral. Um, in fact, uh, someone put it like this: they were arrogant, they were overfed, and they were unconcerned. But the chief sin of Sodom and Gomorrah that's highlighted back in uh, the book of Genesis is the homosexual behavior that was taking place there. And notice he says here in this passage, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. In other words, Sodom and Gomorrah stand as a warning to all that come after them. Now, what's interesting today, a lot of people deny the historicity of the flood. They don't think a flood really happened, a global flood. And they would deny the historicity of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the reason they want to deny it is because if you admit that God has done this in the past, then you're going to have to admit the idea that God is going to do it at some point in the future. So Sodom and Gomorrah are an abiding memorial to succeeding generations of what is going to ultimately happen to the ungodly. And our age had better take notice. And I pray that it's not too late uh, for us here in America. Look, those in our nation who think they can just thumb their nose at God are in for a horrific surprise. What does uh, Galatians tell us? 
God is not mocked. Whatever we sow, we have to reap. I know a lot of you probably heard this before, but Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, years ago said, if God doesn't one day judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's tragic what we see today. In our culture today, same-sex relationships and marriage, it's not just accepted in our culture, but it's applauded. It's not just condoned, it's celebrated. In fact, today, if you don't celebrate it, then you're condemned uh, for not doing that. It's, it, everything's been turned upside down. It's, it's like Isaiah said in his day, evil has become good, and good has become evil. And again, many people in the church, many leaders in the church, many false teachers who openly distort and deny the Word of God are accepting this as normal and natural and a part of God's plan for humanity. I could go on and give you a long list of false teachers today who have embraced what the Bible uh, condemns. They're everywhere and they're expanding. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week when we get into that main section about false teachers. But what does he say at the end of verse 3? Their judgment is from long ago. It's not idle. and Their destruction is not asleep. Look, when God judges... God's judgment is going to be swift. It's going to be uh, horrific. I, I read a story recently about a young man in Utah. He woke up because the plumbing in his ceiling was leaking and water was hitting him in the face. Jumping out of bed, he found that the water was already ankle deep on the floor. He decided to call the landlord. The landlord told him to go rent a water vacuum quickly and get the water up before it ruined his property. So the young man rushed out to his car and found he had a flat tire. He decided he'd better call for some help, so he ran back to his apartment, sloshed back into the water, picked up the phone, and it shocked him so badly he ripped the phone off the wall. By the time he knew he really needed help, so he decided, by, by that time he, he decided he really needed help, so he decided to go back to his car. When he tried to get out the door, the door wouldn't budge. The water made it swell on its frame. So he had to scream from inside until somebody came and kicked the door down from the outside. He rushed out of his car only to find that somebody had stolen his car while, he, while he was, uh, all this was going on. He remembered it didn't have but a little bit of gas in it, so he ran a couple blocks down the street, and there it was right in the middle of the road. Some people helped him push the car back to his apartment. Finally, he got the water turned off, the flat fixed, and gas put in his car. By that time, he had to hurry to make it to his ROTC graduation ceremony. Grabbing his bayonet, he threw it in his car and ran upstairs to dress. When he ran back down to his car, he forgot he'd left the bayonet in the driver's seat and sat down on it. Minutes later, he found himself in an emergency room getting strategic surgery. Trudging back to his apartment, he opened the door and saw that falling plaster had uh, toppled onto his pet canary's cage, killing the bird. As he dashed over to where the cage lay, he slipped on the wet carpet and injured his back. Once more, he found himself in the emergency room. By that time, a newspaper reporter had caught up with him, and the reporter asked, How can you explain a day like this? And the only thing the young man could say was, Well, it looks like God was trying to kill me, but he just kept missing. Well, look, God's judgment never misses. God's judgment never misses. And we see that clearly in this passage. With angels, the, the, the generation in Noah's day, and with Sodom and Gomorrah. God's judgment never misses. God's judgment is inevitable. We also see here that God's judgment is not immediate. The, the, the passage of time without punishment often lulls sinners into the mistaken idea that God's not going to do anything. If enough time goes by, people get lulled into this idea that God's not going to act. But again, what does he say at the end of verse 3? The judgment from long ago is not idle, 
their judgment uh, is not asleep. God wants us to remember, though, that the angels, the flood generation, and Sodom and Gomorrah weren't condemned the moment they began to sin. They lived in rebellion for various periods of time before uh, they were punished. In fact, back in the flood, days of the flood, you remember God came and said, man's days will be 120 years. God gave people 120 years uh, to repent. God allows the godless to prosper for a season. He wants us to know that He graciously gives people plenty of time before their judgment. God's delay in judgment is a demonstration of His patient, merciful heartbeat uh, for the lost to repent. In fact, over in chapter 3 and verse 9 of 2 Peter, he says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see that throughout the Bible. Remember back in Genesis 15, God told the children of Israel they were going to go to Egypt and be there over 400 years and finally come back into the land. And then they would conquer the people there. But he says, the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete. In other words, God was giving them time. But again, the fact that God gives time is misinterpreted by people that God's not ever going to do anything. There's a story about an atheist farmer, and he wrote to the editor of his local newspaper who was a Christian. And he said, in defiance of God, I plowed my fields this year on Sunday. I disked and fertilized them on Sunday. I planted them on Sunday. I cultivated them on Sunday, and I reaped them on Sunday. And this October, I had the biggest crop I have ever had. How do you explain that? And this Christian editor wrote back and said, God does not always settle his counts in October. A short-sighted view of God's judgment. But God is patient and merciful. Anne of Austria once said this to Cardinal Richelieu, God does not pay at the end of every day, my Lord Cardinal, but at the end he pays. God's judgment is inevitable, but it's not immediate. God gives time and long-suffering and and patience for people to repent. Well, the third truth here about God's judgment is God's judgment is not inescapable. If you want to put it in the positive, God's judgment is escapable. This is the good news. God has made a way of escape from judgment. Did you notice in the midst of this passage about wrath that there's rescue? God rescues Noah from the flood. God rescues Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I want to point out something here that's interesting. Again, there's three examples here, the sinning angels, Noah and his day, and then Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, with Noah and his day in the flood, God rescues Noah. And with Sodom and Gomorrah, God rescues Lot. But notice, with the sinning angels, nobody gets rescued. And the reason no one gets rescued there is fallen angels are condemned and they're damned and they can never be saved or rescued because Jesus didn't become a fallen angel to die for angels. He became a man to die for mankind. So when he talks about the judgment of fallen angels, no one gets rescued. When he talks about the flood, Noah gets rescued. When he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot gets rescued. So it's an important point here. Jesus became a man, the God-man, to come and die for humanity and for sinners. But there's no hope, there's no help uh, for fallen angels. Now, again, we won't turn back there, but Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 tells us, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. 
But Noah didn't merit God's salvation by his righteousness. In fact, the, the previous verse, uh, Genesis 6, 8 says, Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. Look, Noah was a sinner. He wasn't perfect. We, we learn in the aftermath of the flood that he got drunk and exposed himself in his tent. But his story teaches us if we'll trust the salvation God has provided and turn from our sin, we'll be spared from the judgment to come. It also tells us here that Noah not only was rescued himself from this judgment, but he was a preacher of righteousness. In other words, he was telling other people how they could escape. Um, how, could Noah, how could Noah be quiet when he knew what was coming, right? Noah's message, though, was a narrow message and an exclusive message. I'm sure people thought Noah was very negative and narrow. He's telling them, look, judgment is coming, and the only way to escape is on the ark. Now think about this. Noah was a, Noah was a, a boat builder in the desert. I'm sure he was mocked and called a fool. But he was faithful to preach a message of righteousness that the only way of escape was to follow God and to come onto the ark. And in the same way today, Jesus is the ark of our salvation. He's the only place of safety. And you and I who know him, we know what's coming. And you and I need to be preachers of righteousness as well in our generation and telling people to flee the wrath to come and come to the ark of Jesus Christ, the only place of safety. Years ago, I heard Skip Heitzig give a great statement about evangelism and leading people to Christ. He said, it's this simple, make friends with Jesus, make friends with unbelievers, and then introduce your friends to one another. It's pretty good. Make friends with Jesus, make friends with unbelievers, introduce your friends to one another. You and I need to be preaching the gospel message and sharing it with those around us. We know what's coming. And Noah preached it for generations. I'm sure, again, he was mocked and called a fool many, many times over. But he was faithful in his generation uh, to preach the message of deliverance uh, by God. The second person who gets delivered here is Lot. Now, three times in this passage, it says that Lot was a righteous man. Now, if you go back and read about Lot, he doesn't seem very righteous sometimes. So how can Lot be considered righteous? Well, you go on down and read here in this passage, and it says... Uh, that Lot was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, by what he saw day after day. His righteous soul was tormented by their lawless deeds. So for all his flaws, Lot was a righteous man. He recognized and hated the immoral behavior in the culture around him. One translation says he was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. The word greatly distressed there literally means to be oppressed or worn down. He was exhausted by it. It took a toll on him. And that's what the sin in our culture around us should do to us sometimes as well. It should weigh, weigh us down and, and take a toll on us as we see it, and it should oppress us. It even says here he was tormented by it. That word was used of literal torture, severe mental pain. In other words, he was shocked by it. And it says day after day he endured this and he saw it. And in the same way, you and I should grieve and lament the sin around us in our culture and find it painful and not become hardened and callous to it. Someone said years ago, our greatest security against sin lies in being shocked by it. And in many ways, that's true. Our greatest security against sin is having the ability to still be shocked by it. 
We must never surrender our outrage against things that run counter to the will and the nature of God. We can't allow our conscience to become dulled and calloused to such an extent that we can no longer be shocked. But the main point here in this passage is God brought judgment on the sinning angels. He brought judgment in Noah's day. He brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But Noah and Lot escaped the judgment. Look, these men were far from perfect. But these men were preserved and rescued by God. And notice who does the rescuing. Look at verse 9. This is the, the, the kind of the conclusion of this long if-then clause. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Who is it who does the rescuing? It's the Lord. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. It's the Lord who does the rescuing. The one who does the punishing is the same one who does the protecting. God is the God of wrath, but he's also the God of rescue. One commentator says it like this, Neither Noah nor Lot brought anything to the table by which they could rescue themselves or earn God's favor uh, to do it for them. Their rescue operations were entirely due to the unmerited favor of God, which he shows to men because of what he is, not because of what they are or they do. It's God's rescue operation through his son. Just uh, before his death, uh, the great actor W.C. Fields, who was uh, a well-known uh, atheist and agnostic, one of his friends came and visited him in his, uh, in his hospital room and surprisingly found him thumbing nervously through a Bible. And his friend asked him, he says, what are you doing? And W.C. Fields says, I'm looking for loopholes. And that is, that's the way it is with a lot of people when they get near the end of life. This idea of a, of, of a looming judgment begins to take grip upon them, and they begin to look for loopholes. But escape from judgment isn't found in loopholes. It's found in the Lord. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has made a way of escape, and that way of escape is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Let me just mention a couple of, of, of final thoughts here, and we'll close. Notice in verse 9, It says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. This is an argument against the idea of soul sleep. A lot of people think that when people die, the soul just sleeps until the resurrection takes place. No, it says right now the unrighteous are being kept under punishment for the day of judgment. So those who've died who are lost, they're awake and they're alive. Of course, those who know the Lord are awake and alive as well in God's presence. But it's an argument here against the idea that the soul sleeps in the time between death and the resurrection. Another thing here is, I'll just mention this quickly, but I see in this as well a picture of the rapture. Notice here with Noah and at Sodom and Gomorrah, believers are removed before the judgment falls. And I think it's going to be the same thing. We see this pattern someday when the Lord comes to rapture His church to heaven. Before the time of judgment comes, before the day of the Lord or the the tribulation period is poured out, God is going to come and He's going to rescue His bride, the church, and take us uh, to be with Him in heaven. The rapture is God's rescue operation. Again, we see that's God's pattern in these past judgments, that believers are removed before His wrath and His judgment falls. 
So we're going to see that someday when the Lord comes. And I believe it could happen at any moment that Christ will come. He'll rapture his bride to heaven. He'll catch us away and rescue us. And then he will begin to pour out his judgment upon this earth during the time called the tribulation period. And when that time comes, I can promise you, you don't want to be left behind. But that's God's pattern. But we see from this here that every person will either perish or be preserved. We either know God as Savior or we know Him as Judge. I mean, probably, you know, the best-known verse in the Bible says this, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's the only, only two options. We either perish or we have eternal life. We either know God as Savior or we face God as Judge. I began this morning by quoting from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Here's what he says near the end of that chapter I quoted from earlier. He says, call on the coming judge to be your Savior. As judge, he's the law, but as Savior, he's the gospel. Run from him now, and you'll meet him as judge then and without hope. Seek him now, and you will find him. I love that. It's a great statement about who our God is. One final thought as we close here this morning. There's a story. A lot of you probably heard stories like this before, but there's a young man. He was drinking very heavily once, and he went out, decided to go for a swim out on a beach in Southern California. And um, fortunately, there was an older man there kind of watching this young man as he entered the water, and he noticed that he began to flail and didn't come back up for air. So the older man ran to this struggling young man, and he, he saved his life from drowning. A few years later, that same young man was standing in court facing a sentence on drug charges. And finally, the young man got excited because he realized the judge was the very same man who'd saved his life years earlier when he was drowning. He looked at the judge and he said, Sir, he says, don't you recognize me? You saved my life. Don't you remember? And the judge nodded his head and then looked at the young man and said, Young man, then I was your savior, but now I'm your judge. But Christ is available to all now who will trust Him as their Savior. But if we reject Him in this life, we'll stand before the Lord someday. We'll only know Him um, as our judge. Every person is going to have to meet the Lord. God is unavoidable. We're going to either meet Him as Savior or we're going to meet Him as judge. So I'd urge you this morning, wherever you are gathered there in your home with your family, Maybe there's someone there who doesn't know Christ as their Savior. And I would, I would urge you this morning, make sure that you've called on the judge to be your Savior. And you can do that right now. Call on the Lord Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I know that you're righteous and you're holy and I've sinned against you. But I want to ask you today to be my Savior, to take away my sins and to give me uh, the gift of eternal life. The Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you can do that now wherever you are. Why not trust Him? Take Him to be your Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for the good news, the great news, that there's a way of escape in Jesus. That we can call upon the judge to be our Savior. Jesus is the ark. He's the one that we can flee to, to be a refuge for us uh, from the coming storm, a place of safety. Father, I pray that you would cause each one of us to have a sense of urgency like Noah did in his day. He was a preacher of righteousness. To tell people around us what's coming. 
Father, we can be lulled to sleep in this time and believe somehow that this generation and this world is going to escape judgment. But Father, your pattern's clear. It's coming. So, Father, give us a heart for people around us who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, who don't know him as their Savior, especially in these times in which we live now when people seem to be more open. Lord, give us a ready word to those around us to tell them about Jesus Christ, the ark of salvation, the one to whom we can flee for safety and for refuge. Oh, Father, help us to be faithful in our generation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Thank you again uh, for joining us uh, this Lord's Day. We uh, hope you have a wonderful week, and uh, we hope to see you uh, back here again uh, next uh, Lord's Day as we continue our study in Second Peter together. Well, let's bow our heads now for the benediction as we leave here with the Lord's blessing upon us. Revelation chapter 1, we read these great words. To him who loves us and released us from our sins with his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. All God's people said, amen. God bless you.